Hello again, and welcome once again to uh, Morrison's Meanderings, a place where we meander a bit through the scriptures and through life to see what kinds of things the scriptures address that we experience in our lives um, where life and truth come together in an intersection. Um, the area that we're addressing right now is the topic of spiritual warfare. And we had, uh, we spent a little time together recently uh, in another podcast or, or video cast um, addressing the nature of the spiritual warfare that Christians are in. Um, the nature of the warfare, namely that of Satan trying to keep us from knowing God. And we also looked at the nature of Satan himself, kind of the, the, the way he does his work, um, one of the strongest elements that I said, uh, namely that of being an accuser of the brethren. And we looked at, at um, some of what the scripture has to say about handling his, his accusation. So spiritual warfare is something that I have said before. Um, I think that in many circles it's, it's looked at too much, uh, kind of like uh, uh, there's a, a boogeyman behind every bush and uh, people end up thinking that the big issue is Satan and the big thing I have to do for my spiritual life is to uh, somehow avoid Satan or uh, say the right thing to Satan and we're not saying that at all. What we're saying is the scripture speaks about spiritual warfare and so we should. And uh, sometimes we, we don't do that enough. So in this second uh, of these um, casts, these messages on spiritual warfare, I want us to look at another element of spiritual warfare. And this is specifically uh, the area of bitterness and unforgiveness and the role it plays in spiritual warfare. I'm going to start by reading from in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 through 27. Uh, reading from the New American Standard, it says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. And we could say a lot of things about these few verses, but here are some basic things we can say. First of all, that in the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul is enjoining all of us to speak truth to one another. Um, uh, apparently, sometimes as believers, we act falsely with one another. Sometimes we don't say things that are true. And um, this is saying that because we're members of one another, we need to speak truth with one another. Now, that doesn't mean if you see someone, um, you're at church and you don't like the color of somebody's sweater that you need to go up to them and say, I really dislike the color of your sweater. Why would you choose that? It may be true, but it's certainly unprofitable. This same passage from Ephesians chapter four down in verse 29 tells us, um, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear. So, Criticizing your green sweater doesn't help accomplish that very much. But, but we are to speak truth to one another because we're members of one another. That includes family members. It includes friends. It includes people in community groups. Um, now, there are many other things the Bible says besides speaking truth. I remember a guy who was uh, way ahead of me spiritually. I was a brand new Christian, only been a Christian about uh, four months. Uh, I was a freshman in college. He was a sophomore, and he was a leader in a 
campus ministry. And we were walking back from a campus ministry meeting one Sunday night on the way back to our dorm. And uh, I remember him saying, um, John, why is it that I don't like you? Now, that apparently was a very honest question. I don't know that would really accomplish a great deal of good. I certainly didn't know why he didn't like me, although I can think there are quite a few legitimate reasons not to. Um, but speaking the truth, that idea of us being part of one another so that as we live with each other in community, we're moving into one another's lives. That's what the Apostle Paul is, is saying. Uh, and there's a great deal more about it in the next chapter. But notice this thing, not only do you speak truth with one another, but he says, be angry. Now, why would he say be angry in the context of speaking truth? I think it's because when we are speaking truth with one another, there are going to be some things that make us angry. Um, someone dismisses you. Someone cuts you off. Someone talks over you. Someone doesn't listen. Someone minimizes something that's important to you. Could that make you angry? Of course it could. And I'm not saying which specific things you're, quote, supposed to get angry about, but what Paul is saying is when you're speaking truth with one another and when you're members of one another, you're going to be angry at times. But notice he says, be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Now, he doesn't go on then and give us a whole exhaustive list of all the ways people can sin in their anger. You can call names, you can raise your voice, you can threaten, you can say deceitful things, uh, you can speak ill of them to someone else. I mean, we can go on and on about uh, all the ways that people can uh, sin in their anger. But that's not his purpose. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write specific things here. And the specific thing he says is, be angry as you're speaking, but don't sin in your anger. And then he goes on and decides to focus on one specific way that people sin in their anger. And as far as I see it, it's one of the most important um, ways that people sin that gives trouble to us in the area of spiritual warfare. Let's watch what it says. Here's the specific way not to sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, does that mean that when you're talking to somebody at uh, 10 after 6 one night and sunset is at 6.16, that you have to finish your conversation by 6.17? No. That's not, how, that's not what God means. It's not how God talks. That's not, uh, God's not saying you've got four minutes to have this conversation. His point, this is a metaphoric way when you say, don't let the sun go down your anger. In other words, don't hold on to it. Don't hold on to it for day after day after day. That's his whole point. And, and oftentimes when I'm angry with someone, um, I could hold on to it for a very long time. I remember one time when I was years ago, it's been uh, now uh, 30 years, um, I remember um, having had trouble with somebody, being angry with them, trying to get it resolved, being unsuccessful in getting it resolved, and I remember not long after going into a low-level depression that I maintained for almost three years with no idea that it was tied to my anger towards this person. But when the Lord convicted me of the fact that I was still holding anger after three years, 
that I had not forgiven him, that doesn't mean a restored relationship, but the fact that I had not removed my right to judge, that I had not turned him to the Lord and said, Lord, you deal with him. Lord, bless him. Do whatever you will with him, uh, but make peace in the body of Christ. And, and then obviously, if he and I were to be friends again, we would have to reestablish that trust. But to not hold my offense... And, and interestingly, when he convicted me one day in my office and I let go of it, I became aware within minutes of the fact that it felt like something had left me. Uh, and, and what I came to realize was over the next few days, I don't feel this low depression like I've felt for the last three years. That's when I realized the connection between letting the sun go down on my anger and experiencing this depression. Well. Does the scripture give us an idea that that could happen? Well, look at what it says. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. You could, you could actually say, do not let the sun go down in your anger, thereby giving the devil an opportunity. Or some translations say a foothold. What it means is when a Christian holds judgment against someone and they hold on to it night after night, day after day, when they do that, they actually give the devil an opportunity. Now, that means he gets, a, he gets permission to impact your life in some way. And we don't have a list of all the ways he has permission to impact you, but all we know is he gets a foothold into your life. That's a very important thing to understand because what it means is that this element of spiritual warfare where we're the, where the devil gets an opportunity in my life is something I brought on myself. It isn't something he's doing because he's initiated it. He's doing it because I've given him permission, because I chose to disobey the scripture. Now, I believe it's really important for us when we're looking at things like this, and I don't know that you would necessarily agree with me, it should be enough for me just to read this, believe it because it's in the word of God, and then apply it. That should be enough. I'm stubborn enough. Sometimes that's not enough for me. Sometimes it helps me to understand a little of why this is such a big deal to God. I'd like to tell you why I think this is a big deal to God. Let me just ask you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, what is Christianity all about? How, how did you get to be a Christian? Didn't it have something to do with the fact that you became aware you were a sinner? That you were, that is, that you're an unrighteous person standing before a righteous God who has every right to judge you? If you didn't have that, I don't think you've become a Christian yet. I don't see anything in the Bible that would suggest a person can become a Christian if they don't know they're unrighteous, because becoming a Christian has to do with being saved from something. And that saved is from the judgment of God that we deserve because of our sin. Scripture is, is replete with that. Well, let's stop and think about that for a minute. If you're a Christian, it means you found out that what you think, what you do, what you say, or what you fail to do and fail to say are dishonoring before God and that he has a judgment for that. You found that out. And somewhere along the way, through some means, you came to hear that Christ died for that, to pay for that to remove any unrighteousness and to give you his righteousness and you believed that. Well now, stop and think. If someone has hurt you, let's say they have perpetrated an unrighteousness against you. 
if you do not forgive them, aren't you really saying the gospel is good enough for me to receive from God, but the gospel is not good enough for me to give to them? Aren't we really saying when we do that, that, that the grace that I've received stops with me? That I'm not meant to be living water flowing through me to another person? Look with me at another passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, see, see what it says, how it, how it goes along with this idea that the reason that this particular spiritual warfare is something we bring on ourselves and why it's so important. Notice Hebrews 12, I'll begin in verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Just start there. Pursue peace with all men, the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Those are two things he tells us to do. One is to pursue peace with all men. By the way, he's not saying that you're going to get peace with all men because that requires cooperation on both sides. But he's saying so far as it's possible with you, you're going to pursue peace. It's kind of like Romans 12, I think it's verse 18 that says, um, uh, um, uh, be at peace with all men so far as it's possible with you. Meaning you can't create that at peace relationship, but you, my goodness, there's a lot you can do to pursue it. Well, here he says, pursue peace with all men. That's my responsibility if I'm a Christian. That's your responsibility if you're a Christian. But notice the second part. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification is a big word uh, in the New Testament, and it's, it's a big concept, and it means a number of different things. Here, what it's focusing on is the process of being made like Christ. The process of being made like Christ. Um, we won't get into all the different elements of sanctification. There's something referred in the Bible to a past sanctification. There's something that is a future glorification, but there's a present sanctification that is working out in us day by day. In other words, that, that today I'm to be a little bit more like Christ than I was yesterday. As I live life and I walk with him and I take in his word and I relate with others, I should be, be becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what he's saying about, uh, about um pursuing peace and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Why, by the way, will no one see the Lord if they don't pursue sanctification? Well, because the more you become like Christ, the more he's visible. It's not, it's not talking about that you won't get to heaven. That's not what's being addressed here. It's talking about the Lord won't be seen in you if you don't become like him. And, and if, if you're not becoming like him, you won't even see the Lord in your conflict. You'll feel as though, it, kind of like political things that are going on in the United States, there's so much war on both sides that there are Christians on both sides of these issues and, and many who can't be at peace with anybody uh, because they, um, th their focus is not on becoming more like Christ. Their focus is on what they think is right and needs to be done. I've fallen into this. And what this is telling me is I won't see the Lord in it. Can, can you see the Lord in the election? Can, can you see the Lord in the aftermath within the government? Can you see the Lord at work? I believe that as I pursue peace with everybody and the sanctification that I'm intended to do, I'm going to see the Lord at work. Now look at verse 15, because this ties directly to what we just read in, in Ephesians chapter, chapter 4. 
See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. What does that mean? When he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, what he means is when you stop pursuing peace with people, the only reason you stop pursuing peace with people is because you've come short of the grace of God. In other words, if you're going to hold on your resentment, what you're saying is he or she or they do not deserve grace. Well, duh. Of course they don't. Neither do I and neither do you. That's the whole thing about grace. So if a person stops pursuing peace and they stop pursuing sanctification, what happens is they won't see the Lord in the situation and the Lord won't be seen through them in the situation. And what will happen is they'll come short of God's grace, meaning they're not appropriating God's grace into their own life. God's grace is not merely to be appropriated for the sake of what you gain from him. God's grace is appropriate in your life so that it can be passed on to others. Why? Look at what it says in the next next um, clause. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. What does that mean? Well, it means that when you're bitter, when you're bitter, when there's a root of bitterness through unforgiveness, through holding on to resentment, when that happens in your life, not only do you give Satan an opportunity, but it will cause trouble. And when it causes trouble, others will be defiled. Like your 13-year-old daughter who sees how you respond to this lady because she uh, has gossiped about you, and so you never speak to her of her, and if you do, you only speak badly of her. And so your daughter, who knows you're a Christian, is on witness that, wow, the gospel gets my mom to heaven, but it doesn't get my mom to grant grace to old so-and-so down the street who happened to gossip about her. Folks, this spiritual warfare is a very big deal. If, if we can grab hold of it, if we, if we can notice it when it's going on and learn to walk through it, we can actually manifest the gospel. But if we don't, Satan will get an opportunity in our lives. And if we don't, it will defile many. And, and what's more, it is an announcement to the angelic host that the gospel is only so true. See, it's true enough to get my sins forgiven and get me to heaven, but it's not enough for me to remember that my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. It's not enough for me to be able to forgive others the way I've been forgiven. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 14, after giving us the Lord's Prayer, if you do not forgive others, neither will my heavenly Father forgive you. His, his point is not to say he'll take away salvation if you're a believer. That's not what he's getting at. But what he is talking about is when you don't forgive, God will withhold the fellowship from you that was meant to be experienced by the participation in the gospel. Um, it's much the same that uh, Matthew 18, uh, verses 18 through 35, when Jesus tells the story of the, the man who, owned, who owed a thousand talents um, uh, of gold, maybe 13, 14, 15 billion dollars. And he said, I'll pay it back. And the guy, you know, forgave him. You remember that. But then he goes out and somebody else owes him 150 denarii. And, and some people look at that and go, that's just not very much money. Well, it actually is. It's, it's a, a third of a year's wages, 100 denarii. 
it's a third of a year's wages. And you think, gosh, if somebody makes $50,000 a year, that's $17,000. That's a lot. When, when God talks about forgiving people, it's not of small things. It's of meaningful things, but compared to what he has forgiven me for, it's a small thing. And again, I'm not talking about restoration. Restoration really does require fellowship. It's kind of like Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus forgave the people who put him on the cross, but they didn't, by that, get restored to a relationship with God the Father. He was just withholding his right to judge. Stephen, the same way, when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That doesn't mean that now they're going to heaven. He's just saying, I withhold my right to hold judgment on them because I'm a recipient of your grace. That's what he's talking about. We need to grow in our understanding of this because I believe too many of us have been imprisoned by the enemy. I believe too many Christians, uh, Christian lives have been thwarted, have been hindered, have been inhibited because we don't pass on what we have been given. I think these passages are very, very helpful places for us to examine that with respect to spiritual warfare. Glad you could join us. We have one more example of this thing that I'm addressing as we think about Ephesians chapter 4 telling us that we actually are inviting Satan into our life if we hold on to unforgiveness. And this idea from Hebrews chapter 12 that others won't see the Lord, we won't see the Lord, and that it'll defile others and cause trouble. But there's another passage that, that accentuates or underlines or reinforces this, and it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And um, I'll read... Uh, beginning in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and, and with this we'll finish, with this we'll, we'll uh, close out these thoughts about the element of unforgiveness and bitterness uh, for their contribution to spiritual warfare. For I, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again, for if I caused you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to, uh, so that I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you that my joy would be the joy of you all. This is some of Paul's writing that uh, it's got so many phrases back to back, it's a little bit confusing. It'll make more sense here in just a moment. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So he's talking about a previous letter that he has written them. Um, different commentators believe he's talking about 1 Corinthians. Some people believe that he's talking about one of the lost letters to the Corinthians. It's clear that he wrote at least three letters and he may have written four. I personally believe he's referring to 1 Corinthians for the reasons that we'll see in just a moment. He says, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. He's referring to somebody who caused sorrow to the body at Corinth. And that that person also caused limited sorrow to Paul. Paul's saying the sorrow should have been greater for you. But notice what he says. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So this is a person 
who has been who has received some punishment from the church. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So Paul is saying there is someone who has repented of something that affected all of you. And it's really important for you to forgive him now because otherwise he'll be overwhelmed by sorrow. Now, I believe he's referring, and many commentators agree, that he's referring to the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, if you remember that passage, it's where there is a man who is involved sexually with his stepmother. And Paul says to the church at that time, I hear that you have someone in your midst who is involved with his own stepmother, and you haven't done anything about it. And, and he tells them, your responsibility is to judge him. He explains the form of judgment that a church should have, which includes putting him out and breaking fellowship with him. But he says it's not so that he'd be destroyed, it's so that his spirit might be saved. And he also said, I've, I've already decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, when there is something that is serious, um, when, when we're talking about this whole thing of forgiveness, we're not saying there's not discipline. But what we're talking about here is in this case, this is a man who has wronged God and wronged the church. And Paul has said, you need to put him out. I, I've, already, I've already considered him judged. Now, ultimately, because he wants him to be restored. Well, apparently what's happened is when, when he judged him and, and when the church put him out, when they obeyed his letter of 1 Corinthians, that man ended up being brought to sorrow such that he repented. But this church hasn't done much about it. In other words, they're just letting him out there kind of stew. Have you ever done that? You see somebody who's done something, they apologize, and you just let him stew for a little while. That's, that's what he's addressing here. And he says, he might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. In other words, the reason I wrote 1 Corinthians, at least chapter 5, was to find out if you were going to obey biblical teaching. Verse 10, but one whom I forgive anything, one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Stop right there for a moment. He's saying that in spite of how horrible this thing is that this guy has done, because of the sake of Christ, we forgive him. There is forgiveness in Christ. Um, many times when somebody's done a terrible thing, we don't forgive them. Again, it doesn't mean there's not discipline. It doesn't mean there's not correction. It doesn't mean there's not a process of restoring trust. But it means we don't withhold the gospel. But look at what he says in verse 11. This is the key thing with respect to the present discussion. Um, he says, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Huh. What does he mean so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan? He, he means if the church doesn't forgive those who have repented, if the church sits in ongoing judgment of somebody who has already come to the Lord and dealt with their sin, it creates a situation in the spiritual realm where Satan is given permission to take advantage of us. He can take advantage of the church. 
He can take advantage of that person. He could discourage them to the point of them trying to end their life or them just saying nobody in the, these people are not genuine and then speak ill of the church or having the church get divided over what to do. The point is Satan, when people don't apply the gospel, Satan takes that as an opportunity. And then he says, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Folks, that's the reason we're having these sessions on spiritual warfare, because I personally think that we can be ignorant of his schemes. I know I have been. And I know that it helps me to see what the Bible says, so that when I understand that he is an accuser, and I, I get these accusing thoughts, I can stop and say, wait a minute. Just like Joshua, the high priest, I'm forgiven. He took off my, my robes of unrighteousness, and he, put clothed, he clothed me in righteousness. And I remember that he is an accuser of the brethren. I shouldn't be surprised when those things come. And, and I should realize the fact that when I'm going to be in relationship with people, I'll sometimes get angry. But if I hold a grudge, which sometimes I do, sometimes I'll, if my wife does something that bothers me, sometimes I don't talk about it with her right away. I kind of give her a cold treatment for a little while. And, and thankfully, by God's grace, his Holy Spirit convicts me and says, do I give you a cold treatment? Do I withhold from you my affection? And really, if we continue in the church to hold on to these kinds of things, we're actually inviting Satan to take advantage. We're actually giving him a foothold. We're actually inviting him to defile our children and to defile our witness. I just don't think any of us who are in Christ would want that to go on. God bless you. And uh, we'll look forward to following up on this with some other uh, meandering thoughts.